Hi, well, morning, morning, everyone. Hopefully you can hear me okay. Um, excellent. And welcome to our fourth talk in the study um, on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so the we're in Matthew, we're in chapter five. We've just heard two um, people read from verse 13 to verse 16. Um, and we've also spent a little bit of time already this morning talking about light and the fact that actually some of us are struggling a little bit because we need light so that we can see um, people around us. But at the same time, if we have too much light, it is incredibly bright and it has an impact on everything around us. So what I want to do this morning is I'm not going to read chapter five, verse 13 to 16 again. But you might want to, if you're listening to the tape, just go back and remind yourself of that. What I want to do is just remind us a little bit about what we have got here in terms of this passage. So what we know already is this is Matthew and Matthew is recording Jesus's words. And it's about 50 years after they are said. And Matthew's remembering what Jesus said to his first followers um, in Israel. So he's already given them what we call the Beatitudes, a series of beautiful attitudes. Um, and we remind ourselves that when Paul writes in Philippians, he's saying, as Christians, we should let our attitude be like that of Christ Jesus, who taking the very nature of God humbled himself and became obedient to death, even unto death on a cross. So we are called as Christians to take on the attitudes of Jesus. We're not called to work them up. We're not called to um, actively kind of just have to be every morning, right? Come on, come on, come on. I've got to get the attitude right. Because Jesus says he left the Holy Spirit with us, within us, so that we can be more like Jesus. So this is not a big guilt trip. This is not um, you must be, 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 all of these different things. Um, this is blessed are those people who are being and becoming more like Jesus as the Holy Spirit works in us. So please, all the way through, in the same way that we said earlier, when you read Revelation, you could become fearful. In the same way, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, you could easily become condemned if you're looking at it as a way of tick listing all the things you have to do as a Christian. What we know, of course, is that is the opposite of what Jesus is saying. It's where he is turning the traditional Jewish thinking on the head and saying what you need to do is be open, be yielded, be humble. And as you do that, then the power of God will work through you. So Jesus has said um, these blessed are the people who begin to show and start showing these attitudes. But he then immediately says something different. And the sentence construction is different and the tone is different. These are now imperatives. Um, you are salt. You are light. You are salt and you are light. So whereas with the Beatitudes, we we may have got a slightly different recording from um, Luke and from Matthew. 
Um, I think the original audience here and subsequent listeners will remember those two phrases with three words in each. Um, and I think it's because the words are so clear and so startling. So if we go back and we imagine somebody's heard Jesus say them, back they go, mum, 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 mum. Guess what Jesus said this afternoon? Anthony, did you bunk school again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Jesus, he was so good. And then Peter and John, they're reflecting on this a little bit later in life. Do you remember, they say to each other, when Jesus talked about salt and light? Yeah, yeah. Great example. Great example. Wow. That makes sense now. Thank goodness that he gave that example because we have seen all of this stuff happen since he first said it. Do you and then off they go into reminiscing about some of the great things that they've seen happen as the first disciples, the first Christians are salt and light. So the first thing I want to say about this is that these are non-negotiable metaphors. They're non-negotiable metaphors. Jesus doesn't continue this be, 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 or blessed, blessed, blessed. He, he doesn't say be salt and light. He definitely doesn't say blessed are you on those occasions when you're salt and light. He says you are. So there's probably good and bad things about this. If we, if we take the good thing, first of all, first thing is it relieves pressure we don't need to try and be salt and light we don't even need to strive we don't need to think how do i become salt and light and in fact we don't even need to start weighing up am i being salt and light am i really salt am i really light we just are job done secondly though seemingly there are some bad things about this and of course they're linked to the good you are salt and light so wherever you go and whatever you do as a christian you affect the atmosphere you have an impact and i said this is seemingly bad for what i expect you are already beginning to sense Ah, uh, yeah, this is actually really, really challenging because it means that whenever we go into a situation, we know because it's black and white in the Bible, we will have an impact. Whatever situation we go into, whether it's a Zoom call, a physical meeting, whether it's at home with our family, with our children, whether it's at work, we are having an effect. Now, that is challenging, but the whole point and the reason I stress this right at the start is that God's plan in Jesus and in the deposit of the Holy Spirit is that Jesus and his followers do affect the world. That's, that's the gospel. That is the good news, the good, good news. And we've already touched on the fact that we are in a confusing uncertain volatile situation at the moment where we are we are finding ambiguity we are finding that we want to be certain and some people are certain but people are disagreeing people are being challenged to the very very core of what they believe and one of the songs we sang this morning 
is all about having a firm foundation. And it is really clear that unless we've got a firm foundation, unless we've got something solid to build on, then actually we are building, as we'll see later on in this sermon, we're just building on sand. And when the wind blows and when, when the sea comes and when all of the elements affect us, we'll just crash and we will crumble. But when we do, as Louise was saying earlier, when we remind ourselves, when we remind ourselves the gospel is good news and it's real, solid, strong, foundationally secure good news, we know that our presence in this broken and fallen world is part of God's redemptive plan. Um, now, for me, it's, it's always going to be scary and challenging, but it's also going to be as clear as you can get. You cannot get away from this. So that's the kind of good and the bad, the exciting and the challenging. Let's then think, first of all, a little bit about salt. We've, we've really only got two things this morning to think about. We've got salt, we've got light. So salt first. In the first century, salt was absolutely crucial. Um, somebody at my school decided that salt probably shouldn't be available readily in little packets for all of the kids and then forgot about the teachers. So when it's Friday and we have fish and chips at school, uh, I cannot get salt to go with it. Somebody has to go around the back or one or two people in the mass department have got some secret salt stashes. But salt, it's not crucial. And in fact, we think to ourselves, we've got too much. We don't necessarily. But in those days, salt wasn't just about flavouring. It was about preservation. Meat was kept edible by using salt. In fact, most food that had to, to, to keep was done so through salt. There were no fridges. Um, in fact, fridges weren't invented, if you're interested, until the Napoleonic Wars, when the Emperor Napoleon was going all the way through Russia and he had to find some ways to stop his soldiers from, from dying from malnutrition and lack of food, etc. So they come up with this interesting way of trying to come up with a fridge. But, but that's hundreds of years later. Salt is fundamental and was when it was used fundamental to life salt still is in our blood it's in our sweat it's in our tears so Jesus isn't just using a simile he's using a metaphor and I'm sure many of you will remember when you were at school the difference between a simile and a metaphor a simile is basically saying it's similar it's saying you're like something. So um, the, the, let's think about it. The fog was like a blanket. But Jesus doesn't use a simile. He uses a metaphor. And a metaphor is where you say something is something else. So he doesn't say you are like salt. You're a bit similar to it. He says you are salt. What he's trying to do and again, it goes back to that thing we were talking about a couple of weeks ago. He's trying to really drive home a point because he's talking to listeners and he wants them to remember this. He's saying to his followers, you are the ones who bring life, who preserve, who keep the world from rotting and dying. 
And there's a really interesting Old Testament story in two kings, um, two kings, chapter two, verses 20 to 22, where Elisha, who's one of the prophets of Israel, says to someone, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they bring him the bowl and he goes to a spring of water and throws the salt in. And as he does it, he says, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, says the writer of Kings, according to the word that Elisha spoke. So the word there is really interesting. Throw salt into something and neither death nor miscarriage will come. Salt preserves. It stops death. It stops decay, but it also brings life and healing. It brings tastiness to things. So this is what we are. This is what the world needs. And this is what we are, us as individual Christians and as a body of Christians together. Now, the world is meant to have come a long, long way since Jesus was writing and speaking. But as we've just said, it is not so evidence today that we have actually done this. We are meant to be more sophisticated, more enlightened, more intelligent, more skilled, more skillful than we've ever been throughout history. But as we know, there are more wars in the last century that have killed more people than ever before. And the approach that we take to the environment, to each other, to God, is shocking. Technology has got some great uses. And the proliferation, the expansion of technology has been quite staggering in the last 10, 20, 30 years. It's got some great uses and some great strengths. But it also has some fundamental problems. Many of our children and many of us with children know that children are struggling to relate to people anymore. They don't know how to link with people anymore. I read an article recently that was saying that um, when, uh, when a relationship breaks up, even into the 20s, people are just texting or getting their friends to text and say, actually, I don't want to be with you anymore. And that's not after maybe just a one day relationship. We're talking about six months and one year relationships. People don't even know what proper relationships are anymore. They don't know how to disagree with each other. They don't know how to take a view, hear another view, and then in love and in positivity come to some kind of conclusion. And so we can easily criticise the way that so many people are in society. But are we any better? Are we better than this? Because we have become sometimes people who are so opinionated that we are rock solid in our beliefs. And when something else comes to challenge us, we sometimes feel actually that's outrageous that people are challenging it. It's obvious. It's self-evident. Clearly they're wrong. One of my uh, family said to me recently, Dad, have you really thought about whether you're racist or not? 
And my immediate reaction is, that's ridiculous. What a And I started thinking of all the justifications. But when you stop and you read about unconscious bias and you read about some of the ways that actually our um, world has evolved, our own personal world has evolved, you begin to realise, actually, do I value and do I demonstrate a support and a love and a care for people, regardless of wherever they come from? And I've been really challenged in the last couple of weeks um, about what, what I would call migrants, because I've started thinking about how I read those stories and how I think about the people recently in Greys who um, got caught in the, the lorry where they all died and the people who die regularly coming over on boats to our country and the statistics that look at our country versus some of the other European countries. And I've started thinking, am I really, really like Jesus says, am I really believing that the gospel, the good news is for everyone? And am I really a salt and light in that area? So we've all got to look at ourselves and not hide behind our age and our seeming experience and our seeming intelligence and use it as a way of kind of protecting our lives and bringing comfort to our lives and making our lives so safe and, and so protected and so enclosed that we are not salt and light in this world. I, I do like to sit in judgment on the world. I do think I'm actually a good person. And actually that could be a barrier to me really being salt and light in the world. And I also like tidy. I like neat and tidy. And the more I look at this, I'm not convinced that God ever says we need to be tidy. I think he says to us, we need to be salt and light. And in fact, he says to us, we are salt and light. And that is getting involved, hands on, dirty hands in a difficult, dark world. So Jesus is saying to us, when we go into the world, when we meet our friends, when we go to our workplaces, we are salt. We bring healing. We bring comfort. We help prolong life. We bring salvation. I saw the most amazing picture on LinkedIn recently where a guy was about to jump off a bridge and a whole load of people grabbed onto this guy and you could see them. He was the other side of the bridge. There were people grabbing around his legs. There were people grabbing around his waist. There were people holding onto his head. There was somebody holding his head and talking into his face. And these people were prolonging life. They were bringing protection and salvation. And that is what we are. And both Mark and Luke, the other two Gospels that are quite similar to Matthew, the synoptic Gospels, they have this phrase about salt. And they have it exactly the same way. Now, both Mark and Luke actually focus on the fact that salt which loses saltiness is useless and I think Michaela read this bit to us Matthew even goes as far as saying if the salt loses its saltiness then it's good only to be thrown out and trampled now many people have understood this to mean that if you don't keep salty you are going to be thrown out destroyed chucked out by Jesus by God so it's quite threatening be salt 
or else. Now, I am not so certain that that is what Jesus is wanting to emphasize, because that feels that it is not in keeping with the spirit of salt and light and hope and good news. I don't think that Jesus is wanting to say to us, you need to do this or you will be destroyed. I don't think he's saying be light, shine. And if you don't shine, I'm going to destroy you. It's not in keeping. I think what Jesus is saying is have confidence in what I am making you to be. This invitation, really, it's about being like Jesus. It's not be like Jesus so that you avoid eternal damnation. It's allow Jesus and the Holy Spirit to permeate you, permeate your being, permeate what you do so that you become a life preserver, so that you bring shalom, so that you bring wholeness wherever you go. And I think that interpretation is supported by the fact that when Jesus then goes on and talks about light, he doesn't say, be light or I am going to snuff you out forever. He says, let your light so shine that people will see it and glorify your father in heaven. You see, Jesus, Jesus is obsessed with the father. He's in love with his father. He's in awe of his father. He thinks his father is amazing. And God the father thinks Jesus is amazing and awesome. And he is well pleased with him. And in the same way, God the father is pleased and proud of you. And when we come up with that phrase um, in that song um, that we sometimes sing about, um, he brings us to his banqueting table. His, his banner over us is love. He does all things well. Just look at our lives. Sometimes we think, yeah, really, um, maybe look at their life or look at his life or her life. Now, you can have a look at those. Don't really shine a light on my life. That's not the way God is intending us to behave. He wants us to behave in the confidence, the foundational knowledge deep inside that we are his, we are safe. So the metaphor about light, just like the metaphor about salt, is beautiful, but it's a bit scary. Now, in those days, obviously, they couldn't just switch a light on. They didn't have electricity. They didn't have street lamps. You needed oil in your lamp to keep it burning. It was crucial. And Jesus actually talks a few times about having oil in your lamp, being prepared. In fact, one particular example, he talks about the end times and he says, be prepared, be ready. You need oil in your lamp. Also in Israel, there are many, many cities and towns built on hills. Some of you may have been, say, to the south of Spain, and you will see that there are some amazing whitewashed um, towns, buildings on hills. And they're deliberately on hills for a number of different reasons. But in Israel, when you go around, you will see hills that have cities, towns and villages on them. And you can see them from a long way off. So if you're on Lake Tiberias and you look around the edges, you see Capernaum, you see Tiberias, as it's now called. And Jesus is trying to say 
that shining lights are guides, like light houses. They clarify, they bring understanding, and they bring vision. And they're beautiful, they're attractive, but they can also be quite stark. Now, in Philippians, Paul says, we become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation so that we can shine among them like stars in the sky. Now, some of you might have seen the film Stardust. And I have to say, Stardust is one of our family's favourite films. It's quite useful because it's on that kind of PG-12 borderline. So it's a little bit scary, um, but it's also very, very fun with a really nice message. It's got Robert De Niro playing a fascinating character. And it's got Claire Danes, Nita, of course, and not Gwyneth Paltrow, as I said on the video last night. In this film, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. So uh, just, just switch off for a moment. In this film, a star falls to earth. And during the film, there's a whole thing, a, a whole way in which things weave together, different worlds weave together. And when everything seems to have gone wrong, and the hero is in big, big trouble. The star saves him. And there's a beautiful little bit in the film where the phrase is, what do stars do? And Claire Dane says, they shine. And the light that she produces is so, so staggering, so bright, so powerful and strong that it pierces, smashes, literally burns away all evil that is trying to destroy the hero. What do the children of God do? They shine. So we can reflect on the times that we're in and we can say with great clarity and great security, the world needs light. It needs purity. It needs clarity. It needs optimism. It needs hope. Now, there have probably been lots of times throughout centuries in different countries where actually the world and particular parts of the world have needed the children of God to shine. But we certainly know that now is one of those times. Our light, our truth, our Jesus, our gospel is needed. And Jesus is really clear. If we haven't got this message, he says, nobody lights a lamp and then puts it under a bushel. Now, you don't need to be a biblical scholar to know a bushel is obviously something that blocks light. His point is really clear. No one lights a light. No one wants to set a light on and then immediately hides it. We are created, made, switched on to be light. We are meant to bring clarity, illumination, and it is madness to think that God wants anything other than that for our lives. It really changed my life when I started to understand as an adult who was meant to be intelligent, who was meant to be qualified, it made all the difference when I realised God doesn't just love me. He really, really likes me. He puts things in place 
so that I succeed. He wants me to be happy. He wants me to succeed. He wants me to live life well. He wants the stuff I do to go well. He's not saying be salt and light to show us up. He's doing it to show us off. He is proud of us. He is proud of what we already are and he's proud of what we're becoming. So we can cope when we mess things up because he can cope when we mess things up. So Matthew started this sermon really clearly with the Beatitudes. He said, be humble, be poor in spirit and be meek. Now what he's saying is that the Christian, the follower of Jesus, as we become more and more like Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, we will be clear and visible and life-preserving and life-changing and world-changing forces. We will change the atmosphere. And of course, God has always been inextricably impossible to unentwine from light. Jesus is the light of the world. God is light. In him is no darkness. So Matthew is reminding the Jews again in this passage that the kingdom of God is led by a king who epitomizes who epitomizes what the Jews need. Some of you will remember at Christmas that we often read a little passage from the Old Testament, one of the prophets, that says the people living in darkness have seen a great light. So Matthew is being really clever and really deliberate. In fact, Jesus is being really clever and really deliberate here. He is saying the Old Testament prophecy about a great light is actually being fulfilled in Jesus. The light shines in the darkness, John says at the very, very start of his gospel, and the darkness will not overcome it or the darkness will not understand it, depending on how you interpret the phrase. This is a statement. It's a fact. It's a promise. Light shines. The kingdom of glorious light has arrived and it has already won. Going back to Jesus on the cross, the point of it is finished as a phrase is that it is done. It is complete. There is nothing more needed. The victory over death has been won. And Matthew is really, really clear. And this is the last point I really want to make. Matthew is really, really clear about why we shine. We shine so that people will see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. We will shine, but we are not shining for praise or for recognition. We know that we're shining because we are doing good works that point like signposts to Jesus, to God. This is practical shining. This is giving to the poor. This is buying a house so that you can serve those people who've been forgotten or would otherwise have no hope. This is doing a job that makes a difference in the world. 
this is having that conversation with somebody who is really down and depressed. This is giving money to people who have no other means of having money. Good works will not get you into heaven. But the children of God do good works because they are like Jesus. It is inevitable. It's unavoidable that as we become more like Jesus, we will be drawn into doing good works like he did. So when we're asked why we do what we do and why we are as we are, we know what to say. We say we have a father in heaven who has created an eternal home for us that is safe and secure. And what else would we do but be like him and his son, Jesus? I'm going to stop now and I'm going to pass back, Rich, to you, because I know we might have some words from Kelly as well, perhaps. Um, that build a little bit on what I've said. Do you, do you just want to introduce? Um, yeah, yeah. Kelly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So over the last, um, so some of us like Christine have known Kelly for quite a long time. And um, Kelly is one of the teaching team that is looking at the Sermon on the Mount. So you'll remember a few of you that a couple of weeks ago, I asked Kelly to prepare maybe a few thoughts on salt and light because she is one of those people that I think when you look at, you just know there is something bright and shining inside her. And Kelly has written a few thoughts, shared them with me and Katie, and I hope has actually recorded these words for us now. Okay, so Kelly says to you, Julian, your talk is really good and <laughs> different aspects. <laughs> she says i particularly like the reference to us being salt and light through god's spirit living in us rather than us having to strive for it thank goodness and i would say thank god but i do think our ability to do it well is dependent on knowing who we are in christ which of course means us knowing who Christ is. Also, it's helpful to meditate on the fact that God has an expectation of us being light and being sought. And quite frankly, he doesn't get it wrong. So, especially for those people who are not very confident in their own ability, we can always be confident in his and why does God have so much confidence? Because he has given us Jesus as our example and then equipped us with his Holy Spirit to do the job. For me, says Kelly, there is massive freedom when I recognise that it's not about me. It's not reliant on my goodness, my ability or my level of discipline. Instead, it's about my belief in God's. It's kind of a space thing. That is, the more I die to self, the more room there is for him to operate. I heard a phrase recently that God will never send anyone away empty unless 
they are already full of themselves. I find if I reduce my light seasoning, then Jesus's light and saltiness has space to operate through the Holy Spirit in me. Sometimes, like a small child playing hide and seek, I feel if if I close my eyes, I can become invisible, hidden, and then I can fully focus on Jesus and am able to reflect him better. If we practice this, could we become like Paul and say, it is no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me? It's not about denying our gifts and personalities. They were given to us by God himself. But let's sieve and refine them through the filter of God. Sometimes I find myself going to a certain place or buying small items or, or cards um, when I have no idea what they're for. But later down the line, something comes up and they are there at hand. I don't think we always have to think and decide to do good deeds. I think we need to love and have joy in Jesus and then listen to him and obey him when he leads us. I think the contrast is really interesting and may be called juxtaposition between verse 16. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven against less than a chapter later in 6 verse 1. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. It's all about our heart and who we want to glorify. Humility is so important. When we recognise that we can function well only in God's power and in obedience to his voice, we can be kept safe from the evil, destructive power of pride, whose desperate aim and need is for us to glorify ourselves. Lastly, have you ever heard something that a Christian person has done? Or when we look back in history at religious persecution or war and just thought, God, you must be weeping at how your people are portraying you. If we love God, we want everyone to see the splendour and truth of who he is. And what a privilege it is that he chooses us to do it. We might be the only Bibles that some people ever read. Thank you, Kelly.